being able to read and hear the statements from Sharon Vincent, as well as a portion of the interview between Mark Vincent and Sergeant Thomas Hanley, accomplishes something that reading the online reports about the Doreen Vincent case does not. You get to actually hear their words. The problem with reading entries on sites like NamUs and The Charlie Project and so on is that, first of all, it only gives you an overview of the story. But moreover, it's information that is continuously filtered through people not connected to the case. And with that, you run the risk of putting out misinformation, such as what items Doreen allegedly left with on the evening of June 15, 1988. Most online entries say that she left with her denim jacket, that she packed clothes into a bag before she left. But none of that is true. Her denim jacket never left her closet that night. And as far as the other items that she was reported to have left with, her Reebok sneakers, her duffel bag, her wallet with either $50 or $70 in it, her tape recorder and microphone, none of those things ever left her room that night either. You also run the risk of not paying enough attention to characters in the story that you probably should be looking into more deeply. It's easy to say that Doreen's father, Mark Vincent, is an ominous character here. But there's also the other adult in the house, Sharon Vincent, Doreen's stepmother. All you can really find online about Sharon is that she didn't initially believe Mark's claim that he found the front door of the house wide open after Doreen allegedly took off because of the double-sided deadbolt, and also that she is now deceased. But when you dig deeper and learn about Sharon's actions throughout this case, her intentions are very questionable. Namely, taking all the items out of Doreen's room that she was reported to have left with, not informing police about them, keeping them at both her house and her brother's house, and not turning them over to police until she was served with a search warrant. And also the church service that she was said to be at the night Doreen disappeared, which she left for at 6.15 p.m. and didn't return home until 11.30. What church service? especially one scheduled on a Wednesday night, lasts for that long. When I spoke to Mike Bouchard of the Bridgeport Police, he gave me some thoughts on Sharon. Well, I, I, think, she was a, I think she was a woman that was hiding a lot of facts. I, I think, you know, in a couple of her statements, you know, they, they were very honest about him being a very aggressive, uh, mean person uh, about, about them you know, him and his daughter being involved in physical confrontations. But, you know, that's only a, that would have only been a small uh, tip of the iceberg, you know, compared to what she probably knew. And again, here she is setting, setting a pattern just, just like, uh, you, you, you know, in the Julia Shacknow case, you know, the house next to him burns down. A couple months later, his, 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 his wife leaves. You know, the La Rosa case, they're involved in this stuff, the wife leaves, you know, because what happens is they know so much information, they don't want to say anything because they're afraid for their own safety. They know they should say something, but they don't do it because they're afraid of their own safety. And then what happens, um, you know, they just move out. Mm -hmm. Or they get divorced or they separate themselves from, uh, you know, from that situation. But yeah, I, I think she knew a lot more than what was going on. So the takeaway is, what else was going on inside that house and in that family situation that we haven't uncovered yet? 
What did the people who lived in that house know that we, almost 31 years later, still don't know? So in this episode, we're going to share with you some selections from the last article that we have from the Record Journal in Meriden. This is the beginning of an even darker twist in the story. This is Season 2, Episode 8 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. This final article from the Record Journal, given to us by reporter Lauren Tacores, came from the paper's digital archive. The title is, Where is Doreen Vincent? And the reporter is Jason J. Barry. The date is May 6, 2001, almost 13 years later. Where is Doreen Vincent? Two miles from I-91 and farther from the center of Wallingford. Number 1316, the violet-colored farmhouse Doreen Vincent disappeared from, sits along a hilly bend of Whirlwind Hill Road. Fields of hay and corn, still bare from last season's harvest, border the narrow street. In two houses, 100 yards away in each direction, the closest neighbors remember the vanishing of a girl 13 years ago. You never know who these people were said Jim Piscati. I guess they moved away after that. You wonder, happened on our street. It's always in the back of your mind because it's unsolved. You always wonder when you're walking around. Piscati said he had heard arguing from Doreen's house in the weeks before the 12-year-old disappeared, but nothing that alarmed him. I used to hear hollering up there, Piscati said. I didn't know what was going on. It wasn't my business. I wish I heard something, some kind of commotion, but I didn't. News of Doreen's disappearance did not reach the police or Doreen's mother, Donna Jones, until three days after her disappearance. Jones remembers that week well. Mark Hunter Vincent, Doreen's father, and his family had moved from Bridgeport to Wallingford ten days earlier. Doreen's stepmother, Sharon Vincent, who had a son and daughter of her own, said Doreen felt isolated living in the woods of Wallingford and longed to be back with friends in Bridgeport. Jones was supposed to pick up her daughter and got directions to the Wallingford house Mark Vincent had recently rented. Jones set off a little early on that Saturday after no one answered telephone calls to the house. She arrived to find Mark Vincent tinkering with a lawnmower in a grassy side yard lot. Doreen was gone. He insisted that I took her, but didn't say anything. He didn't seem concerned. He had this little attitude of, what are you doing here? And where is she? Jones said she found her ex-husband neither frantic nor searching for their missing daughter. In fact, he had not even called police. If Doreen had run away, it seemed different to Jones this time. Only after Jones insisted were police called.
The article goes on to quote various investigators who worked on Doreen's case at the time, including a name that I've mentioned before, Lieutenant Robert Fliss. Fliss is quoted in this article as saying that there is no case to prove that anybody did anything. He did concede that there have been cases that have been prosecuted without a body before. However, he stated, at that time, there was nothing to prove that a murder took place. But he did also say that that's not to say that couldn't change. The article goes on to talk about the new investigators who were put onto the case one year later, specifically Detective Thomas Hanley, the investigator who interviewed Mark Vincent in July of 1989. Detective Tom Hanley was assigned in June 1989 after expressing an interest. Just one day the following spring, I asked Lieutenant Bill Butka what happened to the Doreen Vincent case, said Hanley, who left the department in 1991 and is now chief of police in Middlebury, Vermont. I just got curious, I guess. I don't know what happened in the first year of the investigation. Not a whole lot of stuff was done, I guess. It was initially handled as a runaway. Even years after leaving service with Wallingford, Hanley keeps a picture of Doreen in his Vermont office. Case number 88-9112. It's just one of those things. You don't forget a case like this. It just seems strange for a 12-year-old to disappear. You usually find them, dead or alive, or get some indication at that point. In 1989, Police searched Doreen's personal items and her medical records at Mark Vincent's childhood home in Bethel and a Danbury house where Sharon Vincent moved after the two separated. The search of the Bethel home on Marywood Drive, where Vincent had temporarily moved in with his mother, Lori Vincent, turned up a revolver hidden between wall studs in the garage. Mark Vincent was arrested for criminal possession of a weapon, and the gun was seized because he had been convicted of two larceny charges in 1974 and 1984, as well as three burglary charges from 1974 to 1984. At this point, the article goes on to describe Mark's gun arrest and the subsequent trial, and also how Mark had fought the gun arrest, causing the case to go all the way to the Connecticut Supreme Court in 1994. His claim had been that the search warrant was invalid because any probable cause had ceased to exist 13 months after his daughter's disappearance. He did lose that case and spent two years in jail. It is worth noting that Mark Vincent fought tooth and nail to not go back to jail in 1994. At no point did he put that level of effort into finding his reportedly missing daughter. The article also quotes the affidavit. The defendant, Mark Vincent, said that she had left through the front door. Sharon later stated this was impossible because the door was locked with a deadbolt that required a key. Police also searched Sharon Vincent's house in 1989, and Hanley interviewed her as well. We actually recovered a number of items she was said to have possessed when she disappeared. This couldn't happen, Hanley said. Everything from a certain kind of hairbrush, a denim jacket, there was a litany of clothes. Why did she save all this stuff? It's a year later. 
Why did she save all of Doreen's stuff? Sharon Vincent gave information during the interview, but only went so far with it, out of some kind of allegiance to Mark Vincent, even after being separated as his wife, Hanley said. She knows a lot more than she's willing to divulge. Period. The end. Even though she didn't live with him, she would say certain things. She would make certain admissions, but wouldn't cross that line. In the interview, Hanley said Sharon Vincent explained some of what happened when she came back from church the night Doreen disappeared. Mark Vincent said that Doreen had left and that he was going to look for her. The front door he said Doreen left through was deadbolted, but Sharon Vincent had the only key. The issue with the door lock was there was a key to the deadbolt and she had it, Hanley said. She came home and Doreen was gone. He was all nervous. He took off in the truck and was gone for four to six hours. He said, don't tell anybody about this. Mark Vincent could not be reached for comment on this story, despite repeated attempts to locate him through family members and at his last known addresses in Milford and Bristol. Sharon Vincent could not be located either. He had a lot of contradictory information. He had no answer for all that stuff. He never denied anything. He never admitted to anything. You can look at the information in this case and come to your own conclusions. We're missing a little piece. That's her. She's somewhere. She's not dancing on tables. Four days after Doreen's disappearance, Mark Vincent visited a family friend, Georgia Lewis, at her house in Reading. No mention was made of his daughter's disappearance during the Father's Day visit. He didn't mention that she was missing. I think that he was embarrassed. I did ask myself the question. I took it that he was embarrassed thinking she would come back home. Mark Vincent was strict, but adoring of Doreen, Lewis recalled. She has found the allegations that he had something to do with Doreen's disappearance hard to believe. I heard some of the allegations, but I don't know. I never believed it. I could never bring myself to believe that. I can't speak for Donna. I can't speak for what she believes. They were husband and wife. She may have reasons to believe that way. I'm hoping that he didn't because there are allegations going around. I also pray to God Mark didn't have anything to do with it. Relatives don't begrudge police for focusing their investigation on Mark Vincent, but maintain his innocence. The police have always said he had something to do with it, said his mother, Lori Vincent. One of the things was he didn't report her missing right away. He was plain embarrassed. She wasn't getting along with the new family. I think that he wanted to get a handle on where she was before he reported it. For reasons having nothing to do with Doreen's disappearance, Lori Vincent said her relationship with Mark Vincent has become estranged, and she does not keep in contact with him. Police have come around to her house in Bethel almost annually, but she said she thinks it is time they moved on to other suspects. I can't sit and say the police don't know what the hell they're doing. I think they should be looking elsewhere, but then you get down to what should they have done. I don't know. I don't blame them. You can only go with what you have, but yes, they should look elsewhere. People usually want things wrapped up in a neat package, good, bad, or indifferent. You want to know. The police went so far as to interview serial killer Haddon Clark. Now, we've spoken about Haddon Clark at length in the first three episodes of this season. And we've spoken to Mike Bouchard, who told us to check him off the list. 
The reason is because there is no evidence that points to Haddon Clark, only vague claims that he made about abducting a girl from a Wallingford bowling alley, which he never put a date on, mind you, one of many claims Haddon Clark made over the years. Now, it's at this point in the article where things take the sinister turn. The case of Doreen always returns to disturbing information revolving around Mark Vincent, including allegations from Joan's sisters that Mark Vincent had molested them years before. Vincent had married Jones in 1975, after Jones became pregnant with Doreen. She was 15 years old at the time. He was 19. The two moved into the basement of a new Fairfield house they shared with Jones's parents and her two younger sisters, one 11 years old and the other 13. The sisters, now 37 and 39, recalled Mark Vincent's behavior towards them that they believe he might have carried on with Doreen. Both sisters agreed to talk on the condition that their names not be published. Yeah, I think he sexually abused her. Maybe she was pregnant, said the older sister. He did it to me and my younger sister. I'm only two and a half years younger than Donna. He always bothered me. He'd come up to my room with a flashlight. Jones's sisters shared a large bed in an upstairs bedroom of the house. Their parents worked the third shift. The younger sister said Mark Vincent was persistent. Though he never engaged in sexual intercourse with her or her older sister, I'd hear him coming. I couldn't sleep. It started, the younger sister said. I can't remember the first encounter, but I remember he used to sneak into the bed and I remember he used to touch me on top. All he had on was his underwear and he was on top of me. I was the one who stopped it. I don't know how far he would have went, but that's what made me think he did that to her. She was pretty and looked a little older. Mark Vincent was kicked out of the house after Jones's parents became convinced of the validity of the allegations. For the family, diffusing the situation was enough, and no one called in the police. The two sisters acknowledged that neither had pursued criminal charges against Mark Vincent. Detective Blythe said the investigation includes information about the sisters' allegations, but there is no proof to back it up. The affidavit revealed that Vincent had, however, taken photographs of Doreen in her underwear and, quote, the defendant, Mark Vincent, admitted to police that he had a volatile temper and that on June 15, 1988, he had become angry with Doreen, had hit her, and had pushed her into a window, breaking it. In November 1988, five months after Doreen disappeared, Vincent moved into another house in Wallingford he shared with a woman named Roseanne Poloni. It states in here that when Roseanne Poloni was asked for an interview, she wouldn't come out from behind a screen door at her house. And all she said was that she wanted nothing to do with Mark Vincent. The house on Whirlwind Hill Road wasn't the only scene holding unexplained occurrences. Between the late summer and early fall of 1988, two months or so after Doreen disappeared, a State Department of Environmental Protection officer encountered a man at night in the woods of the state park that he patrolled in Bethel and Redding. Sergeant Paul O'Connell came across a man removing something from the back of a pickup truck in the woods of Collis P. Huntington State Park, according to Hanley. 
He had his two arms out like he was carrying a kid or something. Anything. A carpet. The person ran off into the woods. He actually called in the plate of the truck, but he didn't call it into the state police. He called it into his office. O'Connell declined to comment about the incident without permission from the Wallingford Police Department, which refused. Huntington Park is a wooded expanse of more than 800 acres that runs through two Fairfield County towns, Bethel and Redding. The park has two entrances off Sunset Hill Road. One, a partially paved, unimproved road that rolls through trees in a stream trickle before rounding out into a dirt lot that leads to a system of trails. The night O'Connell encountered the man in the dark, he stayed to document a description of the truck left behind. For some reason, he was fixated on the truck, Hanley said about O'Connell. He didn't have any idea where the guy went. It was dark. I don't think he even had a radio. O'Connell gave a detailed description, including dent marks in a jury-rigged toolbox attached to the back of a pickup bed. Hanley said he doesn't recall how investigators in Wallingford found out about the DEP sighting in a state park in Bethel and Redding in 1988. However, when Wallingford police received a warrant to search Mark Vincent's pickup truck, they brought about O'Connell. He gave a detailed description of the truck, Hanley said. Vincent had built in the back of his truck a toolbox. It was a homemade thing. Everything fit the description. The placement of the tow hook on the truck, all this. O'Connell could not identify the man of the woods as Mark Vincent. The truck, however, there's certain was Vincent's. What was he doing? The guy wasn't known to be a deer jack. We know it was his truck. Everything from the color of it, the dents. I think we actually got some black hairs out of the back of the truck, but we had nothing to match it up to. Police have searched Huntington Park several times through the years since Doreen disappeared. Jones hopes her daughter is alive, but has come to realize she can't be. Still, there is no cemetery to visit. Jones is left to hide her feelings for Doreen. I just kind of stand by myself. I want justice to be done, and it's long overdue. At this point, it's been 11, 12 years. How much of a sense are you going to pick up? How much digging are you going to do? The full article by Jason J. Barry won a journalism award in an annual competition sponsored by the Connecticut chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. For a case that remains unsolved to this day, there sure was a lot of information available as far back as when this article was published in May of 2001. So we have now heard the allegations of sexual abuse committed by Mark Vincent onto Donna's two younger sisters when they were around Doreen's age. We also now know about a truck matching the description of Mark's truck being spotted at Huntington State Park in the late summer, early fall of 1988, and a man seen removing something from the back. And this man, and this is a direct quote from Sergeant Thomas Hanley, had his two arms out like he was carrying a kid or something, anything, a carpet, end quote. And then that man running off into the woods. I asked Mike Bouchard, as private citizens compiling all of this information into one podcast, what can we do? to move this case along. What you need to do is, there's a lot of people out there that listen to the radio, um, listen to the podcasts online, that have information. I know some of the information they may think is not valid or it's not worth anything, but you know, there's always that one little piece of the puzzle that, uh, that they may have. You know, it may not be the solve all of the case, but it may be something that puts law enforcement closer. 
Um, I think what law enforcement needs to do too is the people that they interviewed, re-interview them and start looking for inconsistencies in their stories or the things they may have remembered or things they may have heard. You know, um, you know, crimes like this don't just happen. And I, I call it a crime because it's not a missing person case, regardless of what people uh, want to believe. No, it's, it's not a, it's not a, uh, they may have it labeled as a missing person case, but this is definitely not a missing person's case. Uh, they do have a prime suspect. Um, I know Wallingford was never satisfied with uh, the information that, that he had given them. And uh, well, from what I, the short read I, I've done on some of the statements and things, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be satisfied either. Uh, but people that have knowledge of this have, have to come forward. I mean, you know, you know, people who knew the mother knew what was going on there, people that knew the father, people that knew the second wife, uh, and to my understanding, she's dis- deceased now. Yes. People, you know, you had kids that were other kids living in that house. What did they know? Because uh, apparently his, uh, his second wife um, that was living at the house at the time had children. Yeah, two little ones. Right. But little ones see a lot of things. Yeah. And I had a, a, a person that was three years old at the time of a homicide describe everything that happened during a homicide. She witnessed it. Police didn't believe her. And when I re-interviewed and I found a witness to the homicide that the police couldn't find, mm-hmm. everything she said at three years old, 46 years, 47, actually 47 years later, was on the money. And with that said, I wanted to know what Mike thought of the initial handling of this case. I, I think basically what happened was they, they, they worked on the material that they had. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, so when, when you, you know, when you investigate cases like now, okay, you have that case, the, the Duane Vincent case happened in, in, in 88. Now it's 2019. Back in 1988, they were only able to go on the information that they were provided with or had recovered at the time. Now, since decades have gone by, additional information came in, which wasn't available to the Wallingford Police Department at that time. So it's, it's easier to look at it now with all more pieces of the puzzle because it, it comes to a more complete picture. But at that time, they were only limited to the, to the, you know, the, the statements that they were given and any physical evidence they may have recovered at that time. You know, now you know, with other people that had information about it come out. And, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, here's the two problems when time goes on. As time passes, especially in decades, uh, suspects, witnesses, uh, they either move, they pass away. Um, but the one advantage that you do have is that more information is put into the puzzle by people that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, 10 years later, they come out and go, oh yeah, I remember this and I remember that, which wasn't available at the time of the initial investigation. You know, because I'm, I'm sure that if, if Longford Police Department could solve this case, they would have solved it two days after, you know, right after it happened, you know. But unfortunately, they, they didn't have enough uh, information at that time to do it. And, you know, I, I is, you know, part of law enforcement, you know, hope that, you know, they continue to pursue the case, you know, with uh, new, and I'm sure new leads come in every once in a while. I mean, it's an older case, but 
these two come in once in a while. You have to remember, the communication, uh, you know, as far as the NCIC systems, the way information was processed and, and, and you know, transmitted through the departments, uh, has changed dramatically. I mean, you know, back then, police didn't have uh, computers in their car. Uh, forensics and DNA hadn't really come out until about 80, 82, 84. So, you know, they weren't, as progressive technologically as we are now, you know, so so that that's how the standards change. I mean, not that the standards of, you know, hey, we want to find that kid change. It's just that our ability and the equipment we have, we can do it at a, a much, much more proficient and faster rate than we were able to back then. Have you ever spoken to either of Doreen's parents, either Mark or Donna? No, you, you know... I, I read, I read a lot of statements that were that he had made and were quoted in the newspaper, and I, and I read almost every article that they had, mm-hmm. and even the mother. <laughs> and basically, you know what happens is if, if you read a statement, there occasionally there'll be words in some of the statements. Now, I don't have the book in front of me, but there was there was one statement he he made about the um, about his. Uh, daughter going over to the grandmother's house and there was a word in there and, and off the top of my head I can't remember what word it is but it isn't a word that you would be normally using in a sentence if a person was still still alive and, and the, the word struck me and I, and I don't remember because I just in that one book I did 105 cases um, but uh, I just think some of, the, some of the, the sentence you know when you look at sentence structure the way people talk and, and the wording you know when we speak as people, it just uh, it just naturally flows, whether you're lying or you're not lying. But within the within those sentence structures, there's words, the way they're placed, positioned, they're moved that you know actually can tell you if it's like a, a legitimate or a valid statement or not. And a couple of his statements, no, I, I didn't find them. Uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't find them sufficient enough to for myself to believe. Um, if I was willing for it, I would probably, you know, every once in a while just rehash it, you know? Um, like I said, I mean, and here, here's another example of what I was telling you before about information coming in after the fact. A lot of times, and newspaper articles are really, really good for this. I mean, I know a lot of times, you know, sometimes they get information wrong or this and that, but what happens is, what happens is, you know, newspaper people accidentally find people and just ask a random question that the police never know existed. You know, the oh, you were you were down the street. Hey, what did you see or what did you hear? You know, the police aren't looking at these people as is uh, you know witnesses or people with knowledge because they don't even know they exist. But the newspaper articles, when you go through newspaper articles, you'll find people in there that have made comments that aren't even on the original police reports because they know something or they said something. And you look at that and you, you know, you kind of, it's kind of like a sliding scale, Yeah. you know? And, and the one thing I noticed when, when people, uh, you know, they investigate these cold cases, what they do is they take boxes and boxes of old files. They, they spread them out and reread them and reread them and reread them. Me, I think that's the wrong thing to do. Because 
if you have a box of information and files and reports and they weren't sufficient enough to come up with an indictment, they're still inefficient to come up with an indictment. So what you do is you start it from ground zero again. You know, you start re-interviewing. Like when I did the uh, Dennis Martin case in Tennessee in 1969, I, I re-interviewed everybody that was involved in that case, and some of them were in their 90s. Yeah. You know, because the information that they had wasn't sufficient enough to come up with a, a, a story, you know, of what actually happened or what was going on. So by re-interviewing, and after I re-interviewed them, then I looked at the information that was out there, and it just added more to the puzzle. And we will continue to add pieces to that puzzle in our next episode, as we look further into the allegations of sexual abuse committed by Mark Vincent. And we'll also find out whatever happened to Sharon. Until then, we're going to be starting something new on Patreon. For $10 a month, you can join in on our weekly town hall-style group discussions. This week, the topic will be, What do you think happened to Doreen Vincent? We will also share the full, uncut video of my interview with Donna. Find the link in the show description. Thank you for joining me for Episode 8 of Season 2. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. The newspaper narration was provided by Maxwell McGee. Donna and her sisters were portrayed by Nancy Lamoro. Detective Hanley was portrayed by Rick Kinraid. Georgia Lewis was portrayed by Brittany J. Lori Vincent was portrayed by Michelle Kinraid. Additional voices by Maxwell McGee and Daniel Brownstein. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre, produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.